This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from our new 11FS recording studio in Finsbury Avenue. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and I am joined by my co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you today, Nigel? I'm wonderful. Enjoying your new building. It's very fancy. I know. It's very nice, isn't it? And on today's show, we're going to take a closer look at the SME insurance market. So SMEs account for 60% of all jobs in the private sector, a total of 16.3 million jobs. 99.9% of 5.7 million businesses in the UK are SMEs. So this is clearly not a small market. So what about insurance for these companies? Well, regardless of the massive opportunity that exists in this industry, the SME market is still seen as underserved by many insurance providers and indeed SMEs. We wanted to dive into why this is and how tech can be used to change this situation. And to talk about this with us, we're joined by some fantastic guests. So making a return appearance, we have Andy Rear, who is Chief Executive Officer at Digital Partners Munich Re. How are you today, Andy? Not too bad, thank you. Nice to be back. You enjoying our new studio? Very, very nice, yes. Very <laughs> posh. You do have to go slightly further than crossing the hall now, though. That is true, but it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it, worth it for the, the studio alone. And making his debut, we have William Wood, Head of UK SME Propositions at Aviva. How are you today, William? Very good, thanks, Sarah. And I'm lucky I'm here and found the building. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, to anybody who is listening, we are in Finsbury Avenue, which is a myriad of building work, new buildings, old buildings, Crossrail, Liverpool Street. So SMEs play a really integral role in the global economy. But unfortunately, in times of financial downfall, they tend to be the ones to take the strongest hit. Many times that's because they don't have a strong cash flow to begin with and therefore they can quickly run out in times of crisis. That means insurance is especially important for these businesses. But surprisingly, very few business owners actually have insurance or take it seriously and the market for SME insurance remains rather underserved. So let's ask the basic or the most obvious question I think here is given all those numbers and stats I've just read out, why aren't people serving this market? There's two bits to look at here in the the distribution channels. I think You've only got 2,000 brokers, I think was the last Bieber report, serving 5.7 million SMEs. They're busy, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they, they should be. When you look at the direct market, I don't think the insurance industry has made it as simple as it, as it could be for SMEs to be able to understand what insurance they should be getting as well. I might start with education. I know I have a little bee in my bonnet about education, but I suspect you're one man in a van or a small enterprise that starts off has very little understanding of what insurances they actually need as they get going into the trades business. And I don't know if there are so few brokers, I don't know that they, until they're told or asked by a client, have have you got insurance for X, Y, Z, actually would have it in the first place. Well, and actually, that's one of the one of the issues we see. So we work with some insurtechs who try to simplify this. And the first thing they hit is the SME product. You know, you have your general liability product, and then you have your your, your workers' comp product. And what on earth do these things mean? And all this jargon. So, of course, they do the insurtech thing. They simplify it, and then they the SME comes to them and says. I've got this contract with my with my new customer that says I need to have the following aggregate limits. What's an aggregate limit and why did you mention it on your website? <laughs> so we see our insurtech actually going more and more back to the incumbent industry wording because eventually that's what the SMEs ask for because, because the trigger to buy is very often a customer asking you to have insurance. Is it education for the buyer or education for the trade 
Presumably both. I would say there's probably an element on both that are there, but also you can ha- make a huge amount of headway with kind of information campaigns, can't you? Like if you have uh, everybody agrees to go to using this particular word or this particular way of doing something. With fintech, we've seen it with companies that have glossaries, you know, like Robinhood, for example. You know, you, you go and have a glossary. Okay, that what, that's what that means. And then they will say, and that, therefore, off the back, if that's the kind of insurance or that's the kind of word you're looking for, this is where you need to go and this is the product that suits you. So I think to the education point, I think that there's a part that can be played on the part on both the parts of big insurers and the insure techs as well. Yeah, and to Will's first point, I think you you do have a delivery problem. Challenge for SME is that SME is really business insurance, and business insurance is complicated. Mm. And business insurance works for bigger businesses because it's complicated, but it's also expensive. So if you've got a premium of thirty or fifty thousand pounds, then your broker can afford to put the work in to make sure that you get the right package, something tailored for your business, and that you really understand what you're what you're buying. If you're a one man band and your insurance is a thousand quid or two thousand quid, there really isn't the margin in the broker to do the work. But your insurance could be I was gonna say every bit, maybe almost every bit as complicated mm. as a bigger business. Can we just roll back a little bit and talk about some of the different types of insurance that we think SMEs might need? So you, you, you mentioned there that it might be the client coming to an SME and saying, we're not going to do business with you unless you have X type of insurance. What sorts of insurance are we talking about here? I look at it from Aviva's point of view as how do we help to insure and protect the business and its employees as well. So for us, it ranges from your typical insurance around liability insurance through to professional indemnity to building and stock and contents, all the way through to health insurance for employees and even through into death in service as well. So I think there's a whole range of insurances to help the business succeed, whether that's from their asset, from an employee point of view or for something that's tangible within the business as well. Yes, it's interesting. It splits into two levels. Like it's, it's all about obviously the risks that face the business. But if you're you're inward facing risk and outward facing risk, if you like, so one is the clients and stuff that might happen out of your control, and the other is you know stuff that might happen within the business with your employees that if you get wrong could be hugely detrimental to your business. We go a stage further. Maybe this is one back to the show. You think you did a fintech insider where it was either yourself or David called out people don't like being called SMEs. So is that the wrong term? Do people see themselves as SMEs? Was that a is that a whole fallacy somewhere else? Well, that also hides a complexity. We first went into SME insurance as an insurtech business. And I was thinking of SME insurance as almost like a, you know, another line of business. It's like, like home contents. And then you realize it's not. It's whole, as Will just said, it's a whole bunch of lines of business. And you're okay, but it's sort of one type of customer. And then you realize it's actually not. You, know, <laughs> you have 150 industry classes. So we just invested £250 million into our biggest, insurtech, biggest SME insurtech partner, which is Next Insurance in the U.S. We've been working with them for three years, and they are still working their way through contractors as a segment. Contracts as a segment is a $30 billion market in the US alone. And what do you do after contractors? Well, you do the other 98 industries they haven't started looking at yet. I think with the 250 million, you've just qualified the size of this market. It's ginormous, right? It's huge. In, I mean, the US is a $140 billion market, just SME alone. And that $140 million billion is the market that is currently served. So Will probably knows a stat for the UK, but in the US, 40% of single owner businesses don't have any insurance at all. Yeah, and you've, and you've talked about segments there. I think then <laughs> if you take it to a product level, you, you look at cyber, and I think the the last figures were 3.2 billion was the worth of the market in the US, and it's something like 140 million in, in Europe. So there's some, some big opportunities out there on the Europe side 
that have, have not been touched yet. It's interesting you talk about a sort of sole traders as well, the kind of the payoff between the idea of having a company saying inside and outside risk. So you've got employees, so there's going to be some presumably legislation that means you have to have some kind of coverage because you're employing people and those are the rules. But when you're sort of a one, one man or one woman band, the idea of like having insurance probably doesn't even occur to people. You know, an SME could include somebody who makes and sells jewellery on Etsy. For a living, presumably. But, go, but that's yeah. a really valid point. You go a stage further and you, then you say, actually, if I am a one-man band, without a broker or an agent, I wouldn't know that I need a key man insurance. What happens if I can't work? And all my, my living comes from selling stuff on Etsy or wherever else. Or I'm a, a kitchen fitter and I've got uh, someone that comes in as a, as a labourer part-time and I do it full-time for my job. What happens if you then can't work for a period of three months because you've done your back-in? There's insurance that can cover all that sort of stuff. It's just not known about if you weren't in that space in the first place. Or, or imagine if you're a you're a sole trader builder. Uh, my father-in-law was a was a decorator, sole trader, so it didn't have a company. You know, it was just him. I've no idea if he had insurance, but if he didn't have insurance, then you know he could have busted somebody's pipe, caused a huge flood, and it would have bankrupted him. Yeah. If you don't have insurance, if you don't know you have insurance for that, you are carrying an extraordinary risk. And and most of the Sole traders we talked to, they buy insurance when somebody tells them to. The first class we started out actually was personal trainers because personal <laughs> trainers more and more are now buying insurance because what they do is they rent a space mm. and the gym that they rent a space from will say, you need personal liability insurance. I find the whole space fascinating because it's back to your point. There's so many different variations. You could go to take any individual person, whether it's nutritionist or gym or hairdressers, one of the common ones, whether they're mobile or not mobile. Restaurants are one that gets banded absolutely everywhere. That's what your, one of your favourites, Andy, because every time you see a demo for a new SME product, up pops a restaurant. and a, oh, a cafe, like an independent cafe. We've talked about these different models, but I think one of the things that also is the point, if you are a one-person band or you do just own a cafe and you just, you know, that's, that's your entire livelihood in there, you do have to weigh up between how much money do I spend on this and how much is that going to eat into my profit margins? And if you generally, those people who are doing that kind of jobs are not making a huge amount of money. So with that in mind, how can we change pricing structures so that they're more appropriate for the different levels of, of people and income? Do you know what I mean? If, if we're talking about SMEs and we're just saying there tends to be kind of, this is the price of it, you know, for 50 people, 100 people, 250 people. I'm thinking about new new sort of business models and new ways that we can make it affordable both for the individual yeah. who is the, the hairdresser who only works like 40 hours a week and the insurer themselves. Because if it's not if it's not going to make the insurer any money, as you mentioned earlier, Andy, they're not they're not going to sell it either. So what is there any changes we've seen here? Can can things be done? I mean, I think most of that's about understanding and education because eventually the price for SME depend really on on the limits, the cover limits that you're buying. And if you're a, an independent hairdresser, then you really don't need very high cover limits. And the challenge the industry's had is that what you needed, at least what you probably even still need today, is a broker who explains to you what level of cover you actually need. And if you have someone giving you that conversation if, and if you're not paying that person, then you end up with a price that's perfectly reasonable and, and is really not going to be a deep hole in your pocket. But if the broker can't afford to provide you that advice, then where do you get it from? Mm. And and then what you do is you go and search on some website and you try and buy you know a, a million pounds worth of cover and it seems really expensive and you go, wow, SME insurance is too expensive, I'm not going to buy it. That to me feels the understanding issue at the, at the heart of all this. So there's an advisory gap maybe for specifically, well, there's an advisory gap across financial services in the UK certainly, but do we think there's a big one in SMEs as well there? So I think there is and I think the other the other dimension of this is that SME is, to be honest, not very important to most insurance companies. I mean, Will obviously is very, very important. But 
Stand but, up yourself real quickly. <laughs> there are, let me say, I suspect there are other people in Aviva who look after product areas who have bigger budgets than the world does. My expertise on SME is more in the US, and in the US, SME is not more than 7% of the business of any large US insurance company. Yeah, and, and it's not about the size of the budget anymore, Andy. It's about the quality of the work. Okay. <laughs> of course. Um, so uh, back to your point, though, Sarah, on, on the pricing model. I think certainly on the health and protection side of, of the industry for small businesses, I think the, there's always been this kind of underlying myth about those products being really expensive. And I just don't think that they've been brought to the attention of small businesses well enough. And part of that is because advisors don't generally seem to see the the sort of commission that they're after with those sort of products. So I think there's an opportunity in the market to make sure that those are available through different channels. And actually, we've been doing quite a bit of research recently on on pricing for those sorts of products. And the feedback we get is, wow, was it really that inexpensive? And I think when you weigh it up against, well, if I have those in place and it helps to make sure that I don't lose my productivity which is my biggest asset in some of some SME's workforces, then actually it's worth taking it out for 15 quid a month per employee. I think there's also a balance to be made there as well, or, or a trade-off if you like. I completely agree with you. It's, I feel like it's a little bit like travel insurance. So when you go and look for travel insurance and you can get pretty decent coverage for Europe for a week for about 10 quid per person, you know, it will do the, the basic jobs. That is entirely doable. But then you have the other aspect of it. It's only 10 quid per person is actually going to cover me. And I, I think that's another it's piece. All, it's just to feed cheap. In, yeah, to feed into your, your advisory point or educational point, particularly if you're like, well, this is my entire livelihood, my entire business, 10 quid a month seems too cheap. Maybe I should go for the next most expensive one. And I don't know how you solve that, but I feel like it triggered in my mind when you said, oh, is it really that cheap? And then some people go, oh, is that well, cheap? There's a, couple, there's a couple of things flying through my mind at the moment. One is, Andy, you mentioned talking through... Is it what 40% of people have covered today? So do we spend our time going after that market that know they need it already and being competitive on price? Or actually, don't waste the time with that market. They have it. Go after the bit that don't have it whatsoever and start educating those that could go after it. Isn't there a much bigger opportunity? Well, certainly that's what, what Next Insurance did. They focus really on, on large classes, large groups of of companies. Can you give um, us an example of what Next might offer just to, to who? You know, if it's in the focus. So they offer um, to, so they started with personal trainers. We moved on to to contractors. So we started with sort of general builders and then did some specialist contractors like, like plumbers and then moved on to general contractors. And we've done two or three other sort of small little industries in that. And really the metric they look for is how big a response do you get from from initial piece of marketing? Yep. So that is a combination of whether people are looking for it, whether people have already got an avenue that they can get coverage from, and then how big the class is. But there are still they they have a list of another sixty or seventy industries where where they see enough enough return on their test marketing to be able to make a viable business as soon as we can build a product for them. You, you got me thinking here now. Is this a clear? observation that insurance is traditionally product-centric, i.e. an insurer will create a product that anyone can consume. And if you know what product you want, you can go to the insurance website or broker and go, I want one of those, versus SME being much more customer-centric. I think that's across all financial services, actually, isn't it? Like a bank account. Okay, great. Like that is just a product that exists. It's the same as... But, yeah. I, but, I, but I don't disagree that it needs to happen. But like just saying SME insurance is a little bit like just saying, I am a want travel insurance. Where are you going? How much is it going to cost? Do you have a bad heart? Are you going skiing? You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the answer to that, Nigel, is, is eventually yes. There are blurred lines here. You think about home insurance. 
then I would say buildings insurance is, is buildings insurance is buildings insurance. But if you live, uh, you know, by the sea or in a thatched cottage, then many buildings insurers, typical buildings insurers, won't cover you yeah. because they will see that's a risk that we don't want to take. It's a different risk to the one we call. So you might still call it home insurance, but yeah. uh, but eventually it's a different risk. SME insurance is a little bit like that. So, you know, the core product for a small business is basically general liability. If you do something wrong, cause something bad to happen, then the insurer will pay. The problem for that is that the kind of thing that you might cause to happen if you're a personal trainer is entirely different to the kind mm. of thing you might cause to happen if you're a builder. Yeah. And so when the so. insurer is looking at it, the insurer is actually thinking of these as, as, as different products. What they really mean is, is uh, differently priced, differently underwritten, but eventually the cover is kind of the same. Yeah, and you, you want to get to a point where eventually you put it in the customer's hands to be able to pick and choose what those different risks are that you're talking about because it, it depends on their business as to what they want to cover. I'd like to see us eventually in the industry move away from liability insurance and stock and contents and make it a bit more meaningful to the customer. So I want to protect my business income and I'll have different parts of these insurances um, to cover what I need. Or even, again, going down to the granularity of those, maybe it's too granular, but just of what you said there, Andy, like personal trainer's insurance. Right, okay, click. I know I'm a personal trainer. Okay, a type of insurance I need. And then you have a tailored package or product. And do you work out of your own home or do you work out of a studio? Do you rent a space? Do you have your own equipment? And then, But in terms of making it more accessible, that sounds like kind of the way to go. Or like, oh, I'm a hairdresser. That, oh, I'm a plumber. You know, doesn't that, that reminds me of mutuals of old? Because you go back to mutuals and mutuals. Yeah. Look at Wesleyan as an example. They looked after doctors, dentists, lawyers, teachers. You look go to National Farmers Union and look after farmers. So they actually were built around the community that they support. Is there so anything they, wrong with that? No, not not one bit. I think it's actually a good thing. Yeah, it's yeah. a concentration of expertise. Yeah, uh, one of the things Next do, which I really like, is. They buy really, really cheap ads, like one cent per click ads, which just say sort of small business insurance on blog pages. So you have an example of a, you know, it's a local accountant who says, here's how to set yourself up as a personal trainer. And he writes his blog about the, you know, how to get a bank account and all this stuff. One of the things he'll write in his blog inevitably is you need to think about insurance. And there's an ad at the top that says, hey, buy insurance from Next Insurance. So the person clicks on, on the ad. Before hitting Next landing page, so, so Next gets a, a message saying, hey, you've clicked on our, on our site. Then Next goes and reads the blog. Mm-hmm. And they look for keywords. They'll see the word personal trainer. And the customer will then land not on Next Insurance SME Insurance page, but on the Personal in Trainer Insurance page. They do this in 50 milliseconds, which is absolutely wow. amazing. So it's but, personalization gone mad. Yeah, just and it's just a little bit of natural language processing keyword searching with the idea then that you get this journey that starts at, here's the insurance you need if you're a personal trainer. And they try and take you through a journey which is all about which is in your language, in mm-hmm. your language as, as, as a personal trainer. And then right at the end, it says, here's the insurance bit. If you've got a contract that says you need aggregate limit, here's what that means. And your aggregate limit on this policy you're just about to buy is this. And if you want more or less, you can click this button. So they sort of end up back at the at the insurance bit. But that's not personalization gone mad. Isn't that the personalization we all dream about? Every time yeah. I read about personalization, I'm like, could it actually be personal as opposed to just kind of like, you know, group specific like SMEs? you know, SME insurance. Just wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into some of the sort of 
slightly more interesting types of SME insurance. We talk quite broadly here, crisis incident risks. So apparently crisis incidents, which can include cyber attacks, extortion, industrial espionage, that's one of my favourite ones, and terrorism events hit 1.4 million SMEs in the UK in 2018, which is much higher than I would have thought had you just asked me to guess. And that's a 5% increase from 2017 and represents nearly a quarter of all SMEs in the UK. So it's also predicted that nearly 60,000 SMEs could collapse in a year due to crisis incidents. So I hadn't hadn't even occurred to me that, because we haven't even mentioned it, have we? We haven't mentioned any of that kind of insurance so far today. It doesn't come to mind. You know, those numbers sound very impressive. Is it really, uh, you know, an important type of insurance that SMEs are having? Or is this something that it's only going to apply to specific types of company? Or, you know, for example, coverage for terrorism event, well, that could seem to cover everybody because if you're a headrest, you can't, you know, your clients can't, can't get to you or you can't get to them. If you're a, a, you know, a builder, again, you can't get around. If you're um, a personal trainer, you can't access your building. Is this something that's sort of overhyped or is this something that actually people should be thinking about more and more? I think on the cyber side, especially, I think SMEs are aware of it, mm-hmm. but they're struggling to understand what the insurance is covering. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got some crossover with other insurances that they take out. So you'll find with some cyber policies that professional indemnity actually covers what the cyber covers covering. So I think there's the industry is still trying to work out what it is giving to the market and SMEs are still trying to work out what they're meant to be covered by. But it is absolutely top of mind. They understand that they're going to get hit with cyber attacks because a lot of SMEs do currently and they'll just pay the ransomware because it's 250 quid. It's certainly an emerging market and a, and a big risk for SMEs. For well. me, for me, the cyber, it's easy to talk about because people, it's in the news all the time, whether it's a mm-hmm. big organisation that's attacked. Do you remember a previous show with Gareth Wharton from Hiscox? They brought a report out that said, is it something like 70% of SMEs that go, undergo a cyber attack are out of business within six months. So it's mm-hmm. a massive, massive number. But that might be as material as I can't take a credit card payment on the device and my phone or whatever else I've got to, to charge for, for gigs I do. And that's that's fundamental. If, if you rely on payment via credit card these days and you no, can no longer accept or make payments... You mean because your credit card terminal's been... It's been hacked, hacked or someone's or locked it. it out and you can't get to it. That's, that's your livelihood. That's it gone, which is why it's why I spend... Five or seven times waiting for a taxi at Dublin Airport. It's a whole different conversation I know between you and I, but we spend ages waiting for a taxi that would take a credit card because some people still prefer cash in that way, in that instance. So I guess, I mean, we can move on to cyber insurance specifically, but I guess some of the others, I don't think the stats I've got there aren't broken down into like which of those 1.4 million. I mean, imagine most of them are hit by cyber attacks as opposed to extortion. (laughs) Although I I would love to read some case studies if anybody could point me in that direction. But it sounds like that cyber is kind of the the biggest one that springs to mind that is kind of the least well understood of the new emerging forms of insurance, maybe. I think the other one which really should be on here as well to be thought about is climate change and the flooding that's happening in the UK. So in terms of crisis events, we know that 70% of small businesses recently in the UK with flooding were underinsured. And that is your cafes and your plumbers and that is people who've got stuff stored in garages or people whose premises can no longer open. And you're talking about them not being able to get covered anymore? or So those areas that have now become flood zones, if you like, they, they now struggle with insurance or they pay higher premiums. But you've got those that were that have been flooded in the past and they've not just they've just not been able to take the, the cover out. Mm. So I think there's another crisis um, area there that's missed off the list and I think it's quite a big one. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, we've talked about flood insurance, particularly on this show before, for, for individuals. But it hadn't occurred to me that if SMEs are already less well served than individuals, by individuals I mean like houses, basically, and contents insurance, then SMEs are going to be even less well served. I think this is the, to Andy's point earlier. I think this, if we go into crisis outside cyber, this is where I think we need to start categorising SMEs or break it down to a bit more detail. So. Mm-hmm extortion and a one-man band would be very interesting and odd <laughs> or exceptional, should I say. But if you go from sole trader through to small, which we typically see as one to 10 employees, medium 10 to 100 or 10 to 150, and then the larger end of that is like 150 to 250 employees, typically. I think you see that at more the far end of that rather than the one-man band type area, which is where I do think we need to start going, it's one cafe, it's one area versus actually it's a chain of dentists or opticians that have 20 shops and that still might be a small to medium enterprise but are much more materially affected by actually we've taken out all your terminals you can't do any, do, any, do any work today so this is kind of discussing the problem what's the solution here so let's go with climate change let's go with flooding because that's kind of a very tangible example that, that people can get their heads around and see how all sorts of different businesses can be affected by that presumably there is overlap here for technologies and techniques that are being used in home insurance to be applied to businesses or content insurance to be applied to businesses as well. I'm thinking of things like uh, IoT sensors. um, Well, flood flash is a great example. There's a whole host of things out there that will have sensors to tell you, well, so IoT again, so sensors yeah. that will tell you where was the baseline, where is it going to, and what risk, at what point do you start but, calling for help? But my point is, does that has that been applied to SMEs and business premises and businesses as well as individuals? Very much, yeah, very okay. much. Yeah, I think uh, Nigel's right, it's, prevention is the is the key to this. So how do you help small businesses in different areas that have got different prevention methods that are required, make sure that they understand what's required, and then put that in place first before the inevitable happens. And you can leap that across into into cyber as well very easily. There are you're, back to, you're back to education, though. If, you, if you're talking about prevention, you're, talking, you're now talking about what can I do to what stop this happening next time or what can I do to avoid it in the first place? Yeah. And is it worth paying that 20 grand to get the right flood defences in place versus what could happen to my business next year if there's another flood event happening? Yeah. Or how do I keep trading through it? You know, Eventually, <laughs> if you're the local cafe in you know, a little street in York, then... You don't really have the option to to move out, and you know that your place does flood. But then the question is, uh, you know, when it does flood, where is your stock? How early do you know? Do you have your defences in place, and so on? As Will said, the the read across here into cyber is the problem with cyber for a small business is not so much eventually how much is this going to cost me, but but how do I keep my business trading while I'm dealing with whatever it is that's that's going on? You know, if you're British Airways, you can just throw a lot of money and people at this thing. If you're not, then what you need is someone sorting that stuff out for you while you carry on uh, putting mm-hmm. your business back together. It almost goes back to a bit, if we follow the US model, Andy, you've talked about it quite a bit. When I talk to clients about SME, BOP comes up a lot. So BOP being business owners, product, again, product again in this instance. Yep. Is that the way the UK market should start to head to as well? So we're talking about cyber crisis, liability. Should we start to make life easier by bundling all these things together again? Well, so our our sister company, uh, HSB, has just brought out a a sort of cyber add-on product with exactly that idea that, that the market does have its standard packages. 
So rather than try and interfere with that, you just create something that fits into that standard package and, and adds on. And it adds on some traditional insurance, cyber insurance coverages, yep. but, you know, but insurance. But much more importantly, it adds on the claims service. So when you have the event, they just come and take over. They sort out the data recovery for you. They sort out PR. They sort out legal oh, support well, okay. around, around any GDPR event. And the, the, the idea is basically... If you have cyber, then this thing will deal with your cyber problem uh, and you can carry on running your business because if you're a builder or a hairdresser, you probably don't know very much about what's going on. The other point is that if you're a large company such as British Airways, you've got um, a lot longer that you could probably afford to not be trading. If you are one of these small businesses, you're often running, you know, check to check or cash to cash. And as a small business, and we can talk about, I'm sure there's insurance that covers this as well, your recourse to getting money out of people who are loath to pay you or who are going to pay you late, you know, that amount of time that you can keep trading and, and have got to deal with this with the problem. So the one thing is throwing money and, and people at it, but the other is time. Like if you're a one-man band, exactly as you just described, you haven't got time, have time. to be doing yeah. this because if yeah. you're doing that, your business is Although gone. I'm not sure my, my 747 breaks down versus my little transit van. It might be cheaper to get the transit van back money again. <laughs> well, it's all relative. But that's another thing. I don't know much about this, but is there can um, small businesses take out insurance against not being paid? Can they take out insurance about the fact that they're, you know, the credit cycles are too long or that their two big suppliers have gone bust. Is that something that you can actually get insurance for? Because I do know that getting paid on time is one of SME's biggest pain points. Yeah. Oh, yes. The the famous trade credit insurance, yes. One of the, frankly, maddest uh, insurance <laughs> markets there is, exists in a, in a mad industry. Please explain that to me because um, I have no idea okay, what, what, how it works. You'll have to stay with me here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so trade credit insurance pays out essentially when your customer fails to pay your invoice trade credit insurance will cover the gap. Uh, an SME, the way an SME buys trade credit insurance today in the incumbent marketplace is you insure essentially all of your invoices. So if I'm a, a hairdresser, I've got, I've got two clients, Nigel and Will, and Nigel doesn't pay his bills and Will pays his bills. I've I can hair. get insurance to cover, to cover both of those. And the way I buy insurance is then I, I, I take that to a broker who takes it out to the insurance marketplace, and the insurance marketplace bids on this, and eventually I select the cheapest quote. The cheapest insurer, then, the only way they're going to make money is that they go through my book of invoices and they do their underwriting. This is after I've accepted the price and after I've accepted the deal. And so what the, the customer looks, and they look at Will, and they says, oh, stable job in a good, good company. He'll pay. Not so sure about this Nigel Walsh bloke. He won't pay. And so what I finally get is insurance, which covers all of my invoices except for Nigel. And he was the guy I was worried about in the first <laughs> place. So trade credit insurance, the traditional model, it gives you an incredibly low price, which covers precisely what you don't want to be covered and doesn't cover precisely what you do want to be covered. Surely there's a fit-for-purpose conversation here. So yeah. it's, it's completely insane, the market, uh, the market operates this way. So and where this market is now changing, the reason the market operates that way is because there's no other way to do it because... If I'm a sole trader, then I've got hundreds or thousands of invoices and I can't hand them all over to five different insurance companies and get them all to bid on a case. And I can't insure each single invoice if I have to send the piece of paper to, to my friends at Aviva. The new insurtech propositions that are out there, um, so the likes of Nimbler and, and Hakodo, are doing exactly that. They're covering an individual invoice. So I, as an SME, can say, I know Will and I trust Will is, even though it's a big invoice, I'm not going to waste my money insuring that because he'll pay me, whereas I'm a bit worried about this Nigel Walsh bloke, so I'll insure his invoice. That, I think, is is one of the best solutions the insurtech markets come up with. To jump in, what came first? 
invoice factoring or trade credit. And there's multiple ways to skin the cat here, isn't it? So in the old world, I would have gone out to, as an SME or as an organization and said, let's just do invoice factoring, make sure all these things are paid, and I'll give you X percent on the pound for every one of those invoices that's out there. So it's an old, a different way of doing these things. I think insurance has become innovative now, like the Nimbus and Hercodas of the world, to try and address this in a slightly different way rather than giving money away. Yeah, and invoice factoring had exactly the same problem. You bought it for everyone. I mean, invoice factoring is really just just trade credit plus some cash flow. I think the point would be like it's kind of like do you give the money? You, you still say say it's the invoices for for you know a hundred pounds. You're still giving twenty of those pounds away. Whether you're giving the twenty pounds to the person who's doing the invoice factoring, who's paying you eighty pounds at the beginning, or whether you're paying twenty pounds for the insurance policy that covers that one invoice. It's a different approach, but I think that's your point, Nigel, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so now a nice build-up back to the earlier point, just by pure coincidence. So Nimbler announced this week or last week, probably last week actually, that they've just joined the Starling Bank marketplace. Yep. So do we have, back to business owners, is the individual product good enough or does it need to be a suite of services that says, as a business owner, we've got your back? And that might be a business bank account. It might be insurance. It might be multiple types of insurances that say, actually, as a hairdresser, Nigel, or personal trainer, these are the seven things that you need. And to Will's point, you switch them on and off as you, as you see fit. But the suite of products, in my mind, will only work with what? And I was thinking of another technical solution that might help with the problem you were just suggesting about, you know, having to go through bits of paper or read every invoice individually is why can't I plug into zero and ingest all your invoices in one go in API form and then work out a more accurate model, which would work in a marketplace model if it was actually a marketplace model. But at the moment, Starling is just you can just purchase things that you think you might need or haven't thought about before. The connectivity to the invoice system. It doesn't have to be zero. The, Sorry, that was just the first one that came to mind. Other systems, <laughs> other systems exist. Yeah. The, I mean, the small business accounting systems, there's, on, there's only really half a dozen of mm-hmm. them. So the guys who, are, who eventually plug into that accounting ecosystem, I think, will win. What you're touching on there, Sarah, is definitely the, the new ecosystem models and market revenue that the likes of Starling and Monzo um, and Tide are definitely onto at the moment. Banking's probably the favourite area at the moment for platforms and ecosystems, but I think it's where everyone's trying to rise to. You eventually want to get to a point where you can say to a business owner, look, here's the core suite of what I've got, but actually there are partners out there that can help you with your, your cash flow or retention of staff, whatever it may be that, that's their problem. So who should own that then? I always go back to I have this debate all the time. This 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 reminds me back to my I wrote this thing. We've all got we've got all, all the ingredients, but we just want cake. Bring it all together in one thing. Sorry guys. I just Glad like cake. A thing about cake. I just like oh. cake. But who should own this? Should it be owned by the banks? Or should it be owned by the insurance company? I think you have to say insurance it, company. Yeah, it, 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 no, no, but inevitably, I think, and, and I'm a big fan of networks. I think you're going to have a number of different players that are operating in that platform space and they're going to create their own ecosystem. So you're going to get orchestrators, right? The banks are already doing it, especially in the personal line space. And I think you're going to get orchestrators in the SME space as well. And then it's about where other competitors are and their ability to be able to come and plug and play and whether that's just what they want to do or whether they want to orchestrate themselves as well. I like the idea of going one step further and sort of using that model, or using you know, using a, an underlying technology or an underlying infrastructure that everybody's using and then go back to what you call a mutual model. So like we are financial services for financial, for personal trainers or you know like in France Credit Agricole it was it was, yeah. a, it was a bank for farmers or I, I like that that concept sticks with me with small businesses because it's something that people yeah not everybody can do if you're a contractor and you happen to work in uh, financial change management processes for various different banks across the world it's going to be quite hard to, to find a specific product for you but if you are 
a contractor in financial services or you are just a contractor in you know the services industry or you are a plumber or you are a tradesperson. I think that kind of bringing it together under that label somehow would be more appropriate. Back to being customer-centric then, isn't it, really? Yeah. Or properly customer-centric around the thing that you want in the first place. The last thing we haven't really discussed, I think, is how does this change for the business model? Are we still buying products or do we turn up on site and go, actually, it's higher than what I need to be? It's like sky dishes, the old satellite dishes. I remember people coming out and fitting it. And they go, I can't go up there. It's higher than my ladder goes. I'm not allowed up there without another guy behind me sort of thing. So do you get to certain sites and go, actually, I want insurance for certain events for that period of time I'm there, back to almost episodic or on-demand type of policies. You mean like cover for car? Like yes, covers exactly. car insurance work? Exactly like. that. Mm. Or I need, to, I need to drive. I might have the license, but I haven't got the insurance to drive a... 18 tonner versus 22 tonner, whatever it might be for that particular day. Yeah. There's a US company, Bunker, um, yes. who operates in a, as a platform between uh, employers of contractors and the contractors themselves. And the idea is that if you're a like, contract developer, let's say, and you might have a couple of days with LinkedIn and you've got a couple of days with Google, each of them has their insurance requirements and those insurance requirements are different. And what Bunker will do is they connect to the two employers so they know what their insurance requirements are and then they will give you the uh, as your basic package the smallest package that will cover both of their requirements and when you sign up to that then they will ping a message back to the two employers saying this guy is safe to employ mm-hmm. i think that's a fantastic model just to solve uh, a really acute problem for but is that solving compliance or regulation rather than what the actual person needs in the first place so a person needs regulation i've got I've now authorized and certified to be on site versus what they think the implications might be whether it's key mags they fall off a platform and then hurt themselves for three months whatever else it might be well i think i mean more the former than the latter but yeah. but you have to start there yeah right? agreed. so so what they've done is they've established if you like the bronze program this is what you need to have and then you're at least compliant and if you, you know, if you have a bronze program, you can have a silver and a gold problem, and then we know people will buy the silver program, and then you can. So to do you, this you job, these, these are the mandatory required covers to do this job. Well, it kind of, if you go back to the idea of like services or, or package services, it ties into the idea of I don't know trade bodies, or if you know you are a plumber, you need a gas safe certificate. You have to pay to do that certificate on a periodic basis, but you are required to have it in order to work. So then, do you start to bundle those in and have like the? I don't know what the plumber's trade union is. That's off the top of my head. But, you know, the idea of trade unions or trade bodies or, like, you know... Well, it's Corgi for the gas. For, in the UK, for gas certification, it's Corgi. You've got the same for... Um, but they don't sell insurance to No, but, but why don't they? Well, that's my point. So you've got... If you, if you look at <laughs> Becky and Buzzmove and the team over there, they worked with the BAR, the British Association of Removal People. Didn't even know it existed beforehand, but now they've got it. You think to yourself, surely there's more communities that specialise in... In the individual areas, there must be a National Hairdressers Association. Again, no hair. I know there's a The NHF, I think it is. And it was always banks that had this, uh, that owned this ecosystem because a bank's relationship with, uh, with their small business is very close. And in the, in the olden days, it used to be very, very close. My, yeah, my yeah. wife, a long time ago, was a small, a small business Credit banker. unions almost. And they had, a, you know, they had a really close relationship because all of the lending decisions were made in the bank. So the local mm-hmm. team really knew their, their local customers. But they, like most banks, had a fear of small business insurance. 
just because it was too complicated. And they prided themselves on knowing their customers' business and knowing their own business, and they didn't step outside their boundaries. So while the bank as a whole would say to the insurers, absolutely, we've got a fantastic opportunity. Our customers are really, really loyal. Come and do SME insurance. The insurers found that that channel didn't really work. I do wonder whether whether the likes of Starling Bank and Tide will solve that problem because they have a different relationship with their customers and a different way to educate those customers. So you think they will or they won't? So I think they, I think they probably will. I think they've got a better chance than the traditional yeah. banks anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But then you've got one last community, one, one last group of interest is people like the BNI. And the BNI are, is it the British Networking Institute? But those guys get together groups of trades to do or create recommendations. I've got loads of friends that are individual traders or whatever else, and they get together monthly or weekly, and they recommend other people in that group of people that they know in the local area. So my local area, the BNI group meet on a regular basis. If you want an alarm fitted, they recommend someone who's in the BNI. So it's almost that little community that says, we've got you covered in the area that we serve. There are about 400 different industry bodies, I think, crossing different professions. And back to kind of the orchestration of the network point, and, and digital, if you want to be playing in the ecosystem and you want to be plugging and playing, you almost got to look at those industry bodies and go, who is it that wants to be in that digital environment? And is it where the SME's eyes and ears go? And are they endearing towards them? And therefore, you're going to get the footfall there as well. And that helps you. Um, so that one of the, the, the downfalls or one of the things we say quite a lot about the idea of Starling or Tide is that they do tend to only appeal to a certain type of small business. But if you have a trade body or one of those communities, then, you know, I'm, you know, the example of a tradesperson who is based somewhere in the Northwest who probably hasn't quite got their head around the idea of accepting credit cards yet. I'm not using the North, I don't know why I'm using the Northwest, anywhere outside of London is what I'm trying to say, or any side, anyone outside of like a big city. But, you know, the that's a good way to, to, to do the distribution piece, right? So they, you may not be able to target them with a tube ad, you certainly might not be able to target them with like a, a mobile app straight off the bat. But if you can get products into those communities and the community leaders espousing them, then, then that's a great new way to reach untapped business yeah, I guess. And, we, and, we, and we've talked about banks I think and you've mentioned zero I think accountancy platforms are the other place as well so a lot of small businesses mm-hmm. use accountants and accountancy platforms and I think they're in a really good space at the moment to be able to create the right sort of environment for, for small businesses just back on the, the model point as well the the other interesting <sighs> thing that I've seen happen in Australia as well is there's a company that um, called Avari that have got a platform and they are creating insurance which you can stop at five o'clock on an evening because I've finished work and then started it up at nine o'clock in the morning as well. And I think alongside pay-as-you-go insurance mm-hmm. models that are starting to come out as well, we're going to start to see a little bit of movement into to, starting and stopping as well. To the hairdresser who does three days a week from her home when her kids are at childcare, so she only needs it Monday, Tuesday and Friday. Or, it's Metromar. Metromar used to, it doesn't now, I don't believe, but used to turn on to commercial insurance when there was a passenger on board and turn off again when there wasn't a passenger on board. Yeah. Yeah. Leveraging data, insights, technology. The last example, Bar Mutual. So Bar Mutual covers all the barristers and uh, legal folks. It has one group only that's allowed to use it for a very specific reason. But again, it's a group of individuals with a common interest that go to a single place for insurance. The other one I love is the the Medical Defence Union, which is, I think, not actually even an insurance company. and it, But it's basically mutual insurance for, for doctors. And it runs no, like, it runs like a club. Yeah. It's been re- reiterated through this, this conversation I would say 80% of my conversations I have with my clients are on SME. Everyone, but everyone is sitting there going, how do we enter? What do we do? What do we launch? Where do we go? All right. So what we've said is that there is an absolutely huge business opportunity, but the four of us in this room have solved it and we're going to go straight away and patent it. 
that wraps up this discussion. Thank you so much to everyone for joining me. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, websites, Twitter handles, etc. Andy? I've got my personal Twitter handle at Andrew Rear, which I normally use just for arguing with Nigel about climate change. And our company, Digital Partners, has the Twitter handle at DP InsureTech. Perfect. Will, how about you? Uh, and you can find me at LinkedIn if you search for William Wood um, and just drop me a message and I'll try and connect. Perfect. And Nigel, arguing I, with Andy on Twitter. I think the first time in five years, Andy and I have disagreed about something on Twitter. What was hilarious there was the number of people that just piled in, not knowing Andy and I know each other very well. Not at Nigel Walsh on Twitter, argue with Andy. <laughs> And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you to both of my guests, Andy and Will. And thank you to Nigel for joining me. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. <laughs>